Welcome to Brands in Action, the podcast that asks the questions every brand should be asking. Today, we have part one with our guest, Melissa Katrinsic, president, CEO, and co-founder of Durham Distillery. With over 20 years as a marketing executive in the pharmaceutical, consumer products, goods, and advertising industries, Melissa leads Conniption Gin as it gains prominence into a national U.S. brand. A benefactor of Constellation Ventures, focus on female founders program in 2019, Melissa is recognized as a distinguished executive and leader in the U.S. craft spirits industry today and is currently the first and only U.S. female gin distiller to be accepted and inducted into the Gin Guild. The Gin Guild was incorporated by the Worshipful Company of Distillers, one of London's traditional livery companies incorporated by Royal Charter in 1638. We don't have many guests on who can talk about things from 1638. As a physics graduate of Bryn Mawr College, Melissa supports education for women, especially STEM education. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you, David. That was a fantastic opening. Well, let me tell you, man, I've had some bios on this show, and that is a bio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's lots of layers to it now, isn't there? Yeah, I want to get to all of it, man, because you were a client of mine, and I was an agency of yours for about eight months or something. Not long. You had left. We worked on Burt's Bees together. You were the head of digital marketing there. And then we worked together when I freelanced. That's exactly right. And then you went off and started this thing. And I remember at the time thinking like, man, go Melissa, that is so cool for Durham, for everything. And now it's a national brand. I mean, (laughs) that is not easy. No, but it has been quite a passion project. And every day I get out of bed excited for the day. Tell me how this happened. Where did the love of spirits come from? Why spirits? Tell me how you how you got to this place and start anywhere. Because again, like I want to talk about your, your astrophysics. Your origin story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's incredible all the things that you've done. Yeah. And I think, you know, no one wakes up and says, I'm going to be a gin distiller. <laughs> so for me, it was really the root of the cocktail hour that I watched my grandparents Mm. This tradition that they had when I was little about how my grandfather, it was after, say, he'd done all of his chores for the day or whatever was on his list. And invariably, my sister and I would be spending the night over there while my parents had date night. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather would ask my grandmother if she would be ready for her martini. What he would do is he would get all of the different ingredients out onto the sideboard, including hand cracking the ice, the different styles of spirits or vermouth that he might be using. And the one best memory is that he would always put more olives in his martinis because he would let me sneak them out. And this is when I was like three. I remember sneaking the gin-soaked olives out of my grandfather's martini. I do. I think gin has been in my blood ever since. That's incredible. Uh, Yeah. And so I was always a gin drinker. My sister is a gin drinker. My mom is. And it really was, how do I get Lee into this world? He is my husband, who's also distiller now of the distillery here. And he, when he started drinking gin, he just didn't understand it. He was like, how do you like this? (laughs) (laughs) It was just. But it was sort of like I chipped away at it. And by the time 2013 rolled around, I was facing a layoff. I was running all of the digital commercial marketing for a smaller pharmaceutical company in Chapel Hill. Yeah. And we were doing a pretty big licensing deal with one of the larger pharmas out of the Northeast and France. And at that point, 
we had all of the commercial plans to take this drug to market. So you had to stay in your seat while yeah. the deal was being done, right? Because you had to do the, the transition to the new marketing team so that they didn't have any stop gap in essentially what they could do to carry the ball forward. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And when we went to Savannah on an anniversary trip in May of 2013, we talked about what I could do next. And, you know, David, when you're at that kind of like pivot point in your career, right? And I know yeah. that you had it too when you were like, I'm ready to go out on my own. Many times. Mm-hmm. I was at that stage of it was either I go for chief marketing officer or chief digital roles. Yeah. I would probably stay in either pharmaceuticals or CPG. I didn't feel this sense of that was my path forward. And for a couple of reasons, right? I mean, a CMO doesn't necessarily have a long tenure once they get the position. I mean, sometimes it can be as, as few as two to three years. Yeah. And it would require us to move. The triangle didn't have at the time too many CPGs or pharmas that you could kind of knew that there was going to be longevity to them being in the triangle. Yeah, there were like four right. at the time. Yeah. Right, and, and I'd already had been at Bird's Bees, so that right. wasn't an option. Yeah, you were already at the top of the hill. When we would travel, though, going back to Lee and I, when we'd travel, we would try new gins, right? Because I had gotten him onto the yeah. gin train. And we did that in Savannah. We went to a really nice fine dining for our anniversary dinner, and we went to a couple of cocktail bars. We also went to liquor stores. And we would see what would be on the gin shelf. And I think we bought at least two or three bottles when we were there and um, talked about a lot of different opportunities that we could think about doing together. The way that Lee likes to say it is that I always had really great ideas. It was whether or not they would take it to the next level. Yeah. When we were traveling back here and we were on the highway, he was driving And I honestly think it was probably working in my subconscious for a while, but it became what is that pinnacle light bulb moment. Yeah. I remember just having it in my head. It was, we were quiet at the time. And I just said to him, I was like, you know what? We should make gin. And he he started laughing at me. (laughs) Uh, He has a very dry sense of humor, but he was like, sure, whatever you say, Melissa. Yeah. Yeah. I acquired David while in the car DurhamDistillery.com. I registered wow. Durham Distillery on all of the socials. Yep. I did everything that I could. I was like, all right, while yep. this is ruminating and fermenting, why don't I go ahead and at least put the pieces of the puzzle in place that if we decide to do this, we're ready for it. This seems super trivial, but I think it's really important. At least it is to me. Mm-hmm. And for anybody listening who thinks I want to start a brand, I am exactly the same way. I have so many URLs of so many things that I was like, I'm, I'm just going to get it going. Yeah. And a URL makes it real. And I can't explain it other than that. It's like, I have a URL. I got it. I secured it. Well, I think it's us coming out of the, the digital marketing yeah. side yeah. of the house. It was at least the let's start crawling before we start figuring yeah. out if we can walk. And yeah. then I worked really hard for the next three, four months while I still had to be in that position to start the business case, to see what kind of yeah. feasibility, how we could train ourselves. And I should back up. I mean, with my my background in marketing and, and Lee's background, uh, he was at that stage, he was over 20 years, a pharmaceutical chemist. Yeah. Approaching a gin distillery was not intimidating, I'd say, in the same way as if you had never yeah. been in a lab or knew how to build a brand. And also the ability to probably break this thing down into... At a chemical level, yeah. at least look at it that way and understand it that way has to be a huge advantage. 
I might be wrong about that. Oh, it, no, it, it very much proved itself right out of the out of the starting gate for conniption that Lee's diligence, our shared palettes, and my sense of what the differentiator was going to be, and a, not a differentiator for the sake of a differentiator, but a, a differentiator that was going to be very apparent as soon as anyone tried conniption gin. Yeah. We just felt like, okay, we're, we're ready to do this together. I say that now and I kind of look back at it and we weren't really doing it together in some ways because he yeah. held his full-time job for the first yeah. four, almost five years of the business. So I, I ran the stills, I ran all supply yeah. chain, I ran the marketing. I mean, I just, you know, it is just part of when you're starting a brand and starting a business, you just, you're in it. And it's not necessarily work. It, it is a lot of work. <laughs> right. Well, not, yeah. I mean, you know, me putting in 80 hours to build Durham Distillery was not the same thing as putting 80 hours when I was at an advertising agency. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not yeah. like, I mean, believe me, it's work and you're sweating your ass off. And I remember bottling, I remember hand bottling beer at 2 a.m. Sure. While I was running the agency with my partner. Like, it was crazy at first with Ponysaurus. I mean, it was crazy. You're, but it was so freaking fun. Yeah, but you do what you have to do, right? It was like, I get to go bottle beer tonight. That's going to be really fun, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think one of the one of the things that I really admire about you and, and that I think is different is so many people say, you know, it would be neat is if we started this thing. Yeah. And then they never do it. Right. You have what has been called, I think, a really aptly, I've, I've heard this description before, just a bias towards action. Yeah. And I remember you as a marketing person, you were hard to keep up with and I never wanted to say anything stupid in front of you. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Melissa's like cognitively way up here. Don't say anything dumb. You know? I love that you think that. You know, it's, it's amazing true. hearing that like 10 years after the fact. Yeah. I mean, that whole that whole marketing team at Bird's Bees though, you all, all of us felt that way. It was incredible. I know. It probably still is. It's, so many people from that team on your show already. Everyone either stays there or leaves and goes and does something absolutely amazing. Right. You know, nobody goes and is, a, is you know, a, a schlub. And I was listening to the podcast with Jenny yeah. actually just this morning. And I, I like how you talk about it, that entrepreneurs, they have this action engine in them. But I yeah. went back to the two vision boards that I had done. One was in 2014 and the other one was in 2017. And this is the definition I put up there of entrepreneur. Yeah. So entrepreneur is just French or has ideas, does them. Really? Yeah. I just thought I that no was idea. just perfect because that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. I had had one mentor when I we were early on in the business say to me, the biggest thing you remember is that every single day, something is going to knock you down. Yeah. And your decision as an entrepreneur is whether or not you're going to get back up. Yeah. I have held on to that every single day of this business. Are you cool sharing like a great knockdown and a great getup? Oh, I have numerous. <laughs> but are you okay so sharing? Yeah. So many. I would say that, you know, originally the knockdowns were just a lack of financing. I had several banks. We were going for an SBA loan at the time yeah. to even get this off the ground. And I had a couple of banks just basically you could tell the amount of judgment that they were giving to me, not only because I was going to be starting a distillery, which of yep. course at the time, you have to think about that 2013, 2014, yep. that was seen as a, an extraordinary risk. Yeah. But I was starting a business that they thought I had absolutely no wherewithal to enter, 
But then it was the layers of judgment of you're a woman starting a gin brand. And how are you going to pull that off in North Carolina? That's incredible. Even before we were out of the planning stages, that was what I was faced with. I would say in the last 18 months, you know, because COVID, running a brand during COVID, I'm very proud of the team that I have built here. Because we really came together, we focused, we were able to actually grow a couple of percentage points in 2020, which I think for a craft distillery is unheard of. Yeah. But beyond that, it was in the last year, the supply chain issues that we started to be faced with. And it was the sense of, you know, you have basically a holy shit moment where I can make all the gin in the world, but I have nothing to put it into. Yeah. It was the company, we had always gone with U.S produced glass yeah. for a, a couple of variable reasons. The first was we didn't have enough working capital at the time to have a custom bottle as much yeah. as it would have differentiated us on shelf. That was yeah. just not, that's a very big ask. For yeah, just getting that model done is ridiculous. Yes, it is. And then the amount of buys every time you have to do, right? So you have yeah. to buy a minimum of one storage yeah. container worth of glass yeah. uh, to even make the numbers work. But backing up was that this U.S. plant this U.S. manufacturer was purchased by a company, an Indian company. And the purchase went through at the end of 2020. And then we turn around and then by January, February of 2021, we're told that they've shut down the U.S. plant. <laughs> oh, no. And then, I mean, between I laugh, waves, but... yeah, and Omicron waves within India, I mean, yeah. we could not get glass. Yeah. We were at the point where Lee and I were calling all of the glass brokers in the entire country and Canada and we secured the last 12 pallets of our glass in the entire country. Holy moly. Yeah, because we were like, if we run out of glass, we are screwed. Yeah, yeah, what do you do? What do, you do? Yeah, and we thought we were good all the way through Q4 2021. And I turn around and January hits, and they had said that they were going to have purchase orders that they would fulfill by mid-December. It's mid-January, and they still wouldn't even give me a production date. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember seeing, but in North Carolina for 60 days, we had to go to a round bottle. I do remember that. And you weren't the only one, by the way. I remember no, seeing, right? I remember seeing other like, like I just said at the time, we're going like, what's going on, man, in, yeah. the, in the bottling? I mean, we have canning issues all the time. Oh, yeah, canning. you guys yeah, sure do. Yeah, now the CO2 cool. issue is even bigger. I know. I know. It's terrifying. The one thing that was really hard is that our emerging markets of New York Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee, and even that point, it was Colorado too. We could not send a round bottle to any other market but our home market. Yeah. Because the brand would be destroyed. Yeah. People would say, what is this? Yeah, because they just, they want you to be small. This is the interesting thing on buyers. They want you to be small because they want you to be niche, but they want the pricing as if you were a Diageo. Right. And so it's like, it doesn't match up. There's a thing called supply and demand and economics, and it doesn't make sense. And the spirits, I mean, I know you saw some of it in beer, but the crossover into what the spirits industry is like right now is just, it's it's insane. It's just insane. I I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but I am really interested. I hope, I hope everyone's interested in hearing this story, but you were, you know, when COVID happened, you were on a national task force and you were, I think you lobbied Congress if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, I had lobbied Congress in 2017 and 2018 for federal excise tax relief. Got it. Okay. And we did get that passed, which was great. But then what you're talking about is actually the hand sanitizer 
essentially emergency response from distilleries across the country. Yes, we were one of the very first distilleries in the country to introduce that as an idea and to get it into market. So we started with a sanitizing spray. Yeah, Lee and I were on the task force with actually just another distillery in Virginia, Catoctin Creek, and they're they're part of the Ventures, Cosmosolation Ventures team too. But it was very organic how it came about because Becky, who's master distiller there, is also a chemical engineer. Mm. So between Becky and Lee and then me and Scott, we were able to really fine tune what the FDA was going to be asking for, how we were going to be able to get emergency labeling approved. And there were daily task force calls. Yeah. For me, I, I kind of look back at that time and I'm like, wow, we just, as a country of, and as, you know, a distiller community, we really just decided we were going to be at the front lines. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And we, we donated well over 50% of the product we made. We donated to uh, emergency responders in the triangle yeah. and actually even went towards Moore County, Pinehurst and over towards Greensboro. We would have firefighters and police and RNs just show up and we yeah. would them stuff. Yep. Are you still making it and selling it or, or is that over? Oh, no, no, no. So yeah. uh, we were able to cease operations on hand sanitizer by mid-summer of 2020 and, and go completely back to gin distillation, which is, yeah. you know, what we wanted to be doing anyway. You're on the tip of a, a very important spear there of... Yeah coming together and helping at a time where there, you know, there was a shortage, which was incredible. We felt very much like we were able to do something, you know, when you, when you're faced with a situation where you just feel like you have absolutely no control. And, and the one thing I would mention too is gin is not a category of spirit that is solely out of home drinking, you Mm -hmm. know? So gin, what we talk about in the spirits industry is on versus off premise. Off-premise is your retailers, your liquor stores. On-premise are all your restaurants and the bars. Gin, by by just its nature of being a cocktail spirit, is almost evenly split 50-50 between on and off-premise. So when we had a complete channel of uh, customers and revenue shut down so drastically, we were kind of looking at a cliff and we were like, there's just not much we can do. We We all just kind of huddled together. And my commitment to the team at the time, I told them point blank, I'm like, our goal is every single one of us comes out the other side of this pandemic and none of you lose your jobs. Yeah. So we're just going to have to figure this out together and move forward. And you were able to do that? Yeah, we really were. We didn't have any layoffs. And then by October of 2020 is actually when we opened our cocktail bar. And by the way, in Durham, if you're in Durham, or visiting Durham, you have to go to this bar. It is stunning. It's Thank stunning you. inside. It's like when you when you build a house and you go like, oh, I have to pick the lighting fixtures. I've got to pick like, <laughs> you have to pick so many things and make so many decisions so quickly. Yeah. And the design of everything you guys do is off the charts. Stunning. Thank you. It's so good and so beautiful. And those bottles, I don't think I realized those were stock bottles because they're really beautiful. Because of the the screen printing. Yeah. Yeah, They're stunning. It was all about how do we launch a product that always looks bigger than it was. Talk about that. I think coming from the beauty industry with Burt's Bees and then transforming it over into alcohol, there's a lot of similarities. It's all about the 
experience that you want the consumer to have when they're picking up the bottle or they're trying it for the first time or they're going back and having it yeah, uh, just as part of a brand they always would go back to. And for me, it was not only that I needed conniption to really be a brand that could exist on its own and be almost co-opted by this cocktail community, but secondarily, it was, you know, the only way to compete with Hendrix at the time, which was the yeah. main selling yeah. contemporary gin or because yeah. I don't have $40 million <laughs> available right. to me right. for mar- international marketing. Right. It came down to we have to make these bottles stand out as much as possible and have this element of universal beauty to them that even if you aren't a gin drinker you're intrigued and then once you try the product and you realize that it's not your standard london dry you would then get more interested in finding out the story behind the brand and yeah conniption really has achieved that i'm very proud of it and but you're you're right everything on that that bottle Everything on the the copy and then how we we launched the brand was with a, a mindset of look ahead to where you want to be, not where you are. I love that you you went with contemporary design, where so much of the category goes kind of to a Victorian era, and it's and, and in particular like an you know uh, from England or India, you know, yes, yes, they go to these two places like so many brands do and it's stunning right it's beautiful right it is beautiful you created a distinctive contemporary visual voice thank you when you've got to think about the gin drinkers in the united states and even back then it was much less and premiumization in the gin category had not really been explored yeah so to back the idea of of where gin was in 2013 2014 Aviation Gin was still a small brand. I mean, they yeah. were only made out of Portland, Oregon. Yep. They had just started doing some bigger um, marketing funding, but there was no, I mean, Diageo and Ryan Reynolds weren't even remotely on the scene. Yeah. And so we had taken a look at what they were, were trying to do. And then the other gin brands that had had some success would be Junipero out of California and then Blue Coat and Bar Hill out of the Northeast, yeah. Blue Coat being in Philadelphia and Bar Hill being in Vermont. Those were really for us, if I was to look at people who were really into gin, those would be the brands. And what I saw as an opportunity is I was like, nothing feels of current day. Nothing feels that yeah. you're actually progressing the gin category in the United States and acknowledging that what you're seeing in the United Kingdom and the, and the Renaissance that was full on swing over there yeah, was not going to cross the pond until we made it relevant to the American palate. You know, if, if I tried to create a London dry gin, I'm telling you right now, David, I would not be here. Yeah. No one would have drunk conemption if it was mimicking Bombay Sapphire. Yeah. <laughs> Why would they? Yeah. Uh, and so it was a brand design that had to emulate what was in the care and craft of of the liquid itself well let's talk about the liquid itself yeah i have a little bit of unfair knowledge because i'm a cocktail nut and i post things on Instagram <laughs> and all that stuff but i don't know that most people really know what makes gin gin and i have a world expert on my show so talk about what makes gin gin and is that even the right question that is a great question and that's one of the things that we do when we have anybody uh here for a distillery tour 
I will tell you that nine out of 10 consumers have no idea that the only thing that separates gin from flavored vodka is one ingredient, and that is the juniper berry. Yeah. The idea that gin is like licking a pine tree is, again, what my grandfather had drunk. So that would have been your London dry gins that they really went into the pineal characteristics of the juniper berry. And that was the the main palate progressor of, of what they wanted that liquid to be. We turned it in on its head. At the time, there was a category called New Western. And that was sort of the response from the United Kingdom gin community of, we're going to call it New Western because it's just whatever the U.S. gin distillers are trying to put together. And it's been great because within the last five, six years, the gin distillers in the U.S. basically told the gin community internationally that we hated that phrase Mm. and that we were only going to be categorizing them as what we call contemporary gins. So contemporary gins are really where you're trying to look at the gin wheel. And there is a gin wheel uh, that's really great to explore if you're getting into the category itself where we kind of look at savory versus fresh versus floral or even spice uh, and some sweet elements of how you build a botanical wheel to then represent what's in the gin. And you not only have the botanicals at play, but you also have the different distillation processes. So Conniption, American and Navy, because those were the two that that launched in 2015 when, when the products launched overall was not an answer to a London dry. It was really an answer to why don't we explore modern technologies in gin distillation and push the category Mm. forward. So we were the first gin distillers in the country to introduce a combination of techniques. The first was the traditional vapor infusion method, which is in a pot still, you heat the, the liquid up, which is gin is a redistilled product. And I know I'm getting a little bit more technical, but think about Gin is always going to start from a base vodka. Now, that base vodka can be any sort of grain, or yeah. it can even be grape, or it can be potato, but it's vodka, yeah. a neutral spirit. Which has already been distilled, is your point. Yeah, it's already been distilled. It's, yeah. not, it's not still in grain form. You're not stripping it to get alcohol out of the mash. Right. A redistilled product always means that you're starting from the, a base a liquid. And most of your, your gins that are competing on an international level, including conniption at this stage, start from the most neutral spirit available. And that is an industrial ethanol. Mm -hmm. So we go with, we purchase in 95% ABV or alcohol by volume product. So only 5% of that is water. So that we dilute down, right? Because we don't want to explode over here. You dilute that down. Nor blind anyone. No, no, right. About 50-50. And then that's what is starts the distillation. It's in a pot still that we acquired. We purchased actually, custom designed it from Germany. And then once the vapor starts, the distillation starts, you have it where the steam goes through the botanicals at that moment. And as soon as it hits the juniper berry, which for us is, of course, the main still is a main botanical in both gins. Um, It changes from vodka to gin at that moment. Uh, So traditional vapor distillation is uh, like Bombay Sapphire. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is where it is a lot more nuances of character. It's not like the maceration technique where I take botanicals and I steep them in the base alcohol for a period of time, like a tea. Right. distill them. That's like your Tangeray. Right. Uh, That's why people like, when they think about Tangeray, it's very heavy, on the palate, 
It's because of the additional oils. I was going to say some gins are oily. Yes, that's why. It's all based on that technique. Yeah. So uh, 85 to 90% of our, our main conniption gins are made in the, in the traditional pot still vapor infusion process. And then we brought in the rotary evaporators. Now, rotary evaporators are some, a machine that you would see in pharmaceuticals. So Lee had, had worked with them previously, but of course not for gin distillation. Right. But the, the concept of a rotary evaporator is actually really cool. It is where you are reducing the pressure inside the system. You're pulling all of the air out of it. And when you pull all of the air out of a closed system, you actually are changing the boiling point. Mm -hmm. So we, through this machine, can change the boiling point to room temperature to distill. So we do that for specific ingredients. We do it for our fresh cucumbers, our dried honeysuckle flowers, our dried figs, and now for our orange peel and our lemon peel for our new product. But you are creating flavors that would otherwise be destroyed by heat. In other words, they don't, they don't cook, right? Yeah, it is called cold distillation. So wow. we're the very first in the country to do that. That is really what has put us on the map. It's this marrying of flavors. Like I said, the differentiator is about a flavor distinction. It's not about creating something for the sake of differentiation. This is an, an uneducated way to describe it. But what I love about your gins is that there's a freshness to them. Yes. And now I, I think I'm now hearing why. Yes. I've always kind of felt like there's a presence of flavor without it being flavor forward in a bad way. That's a great way to say it. We And I also like to say yeah. it, there's authenticity to it uh, yeah. versus the the larger guys who will go ahead and just add extracts after distillation. Yeah. Well, I think that's what people don't really know, yeah. right? I mean, there's a lot of chicanery going on <laughs> in all of these categories. And then you've got flavored vodkas. Oh. Is the fact that a flavored vodka doesn't have juniper what keeps it from being a gin? That's correct. Yeah. And I have to say to you, this is the strangest thing. I don't remember when I saw it. I want to say in the last two years, there was somebody that decided that they wanted to have a, what they called a botanical vodka. And they mm -hmm. actually had some juniper in it. And I think yeah. that, you know, whereas in the UK, that consumer is so primed for gin, they love gin that that is seen as a, as a great thing to have on the label. We're still fighting as, a, as gin distillers in this country that people think that they would rather drink vodka than gin because they don't know that gin right. is naturally flavored vodka. That's exactly right. And that has been a much bigger climb than I ever thought. I'm very happy that we continue to have compounded growth of people understanding the category, but I yeah. know that COVID really slowed down our progress overall. From a messaging standpoint, how are you dealing with that? How do you deal with it? I think we, we do a couple of different things. We, uh, we talk about the botanicals in our gin without basically having juniper take the forefront because juniper isn't right. the forefront botanical in, in the gins in the same way as if it was a London dry. Right. I do make sure that we explicitly say it's not going to be like licking a pine tree. We have right. now uh, <laughs> built in education online that is the gin versus vodka story, having the, especially the U.S. consumer understand the background of when gin martinis, which are martinis, I, you and I yeah. talked about this a little bit. So martinis only changed to having a call out of gin versus vodka in the 1960s. Other yeah. than that, it was 
martinis were gin. They were nothing else. Yeah. I grew I grew up in, in Texas, yeah. right? And and we would say everything was where I grew up, everything was a Coke. So they would go, uh, you know, like you're a kid, you're in a restaurant. You're like, what do you want? I'll take a Coke. What kind? Dr. Pepper. Oh okay, gosh. here yeah. it comes. And that's like what it is with martinis now. Yeah. It's like martinis are anything in a martini glass. I can pour right. water and put a lemon in it. You want a water martini? <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah. it's kind of ludicrous, you know, but, but, but also the toothpaste is out of the tube, man. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is now. How do you deal with, from a communication standpoint, even I am an enthusiast. I'm not, I'm not that informed, mm-hmm. but I'm an enthusiast. I couldn't tell you the real difference between a London dry and an American dry. Right. Um, I know right. what the Navy strength is because literally it says what it is, but sure. what are the differences, for instance, and how do you, how do you deal with that from a communication standpoint? This is also where I think we get a little bit cerebral, uh, more so with the cocktail bartender community than we when we might with the U.S. consumer community. What I like to progress is that there are over eight, I think it's actually now at the point where there's 12 different categories of gin. Right. The retailer in the United States does gin absolutely no justice. And that's part of why uh, I founded the U.S. Gin Association last year with eight other charter gin distillers in this country, because we need to fix the shelf where we can really expand consumers' understanding of the gin category. But when you go to a gin shelf in a retailer, and North Carolina is not a good representation. That is its whole other animal. It's a control state, yeah. It's a control state with, with just not a good variety of gins. Right. Anyhow, but if you were to go over to South Carolina or Georgia and you were at a gin shelf, say at Total Wine, there is a mix uh, mash of all gins in usually only about a three to four foot wide shelf and uh, maybe four to five high. The gins in the in the world have grown exponentially in the last five years, but you would not know that at yeah. any retailer in the U.S. But they mix London Dries, Contemporaries, Navy Strengths, Botanical Gins, Pink Gins, all in, Old Toms, all in together. Yeah. And I'd say anybody that really wants to start to understand the gin category is also more than likely is playing with cocktails at home. Yeah. So the what we like to do as a brand is not necessarily go through all the different categories of gin. We do that a little bit on our, on our site and on our materials, but we talk about cocktail application Mm -hmm. because that seems a lot easier to digest of than understanding that flavor profile that you're going to get into a cocktail. Yeah. And it's learning by doing. Yeah. But I'd say the world gin awards are for us where if there's somebody that really wants to understand what's going on in the international gin community, that is the pinnacle competition for gin distillers. Yeah. And it's not craft. It's everybody's in there. Yeah, you're up against everybody. We're up against everybody. And it's trained gin judges. So that's the strangest thing, too, is that gin judges are not common because gin is as varied as wine. Yeah. So you have to have a palate that is trained not only on botanical balance, but botanical nuance, and then gin distillation. So it's a big, tall order. But the World Gin Awards is great for anybody that wants to explore and see what's going on internationally. How many times have you guys won that? Uh, Navy Strength has won the best Navy Strength in the country four years in a row. 
That's incredible. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. And then American, our conniption American dry has actually placed gold as well as then silver all those years as well. It's never won the country award, Yeah. but that's okay. You know, I think we, we still know that there's still a lot of misunderstanding of the contemporary U.S. gins by international gin judges. Well, that's one of the questions I would have about some of these things, you know, and I I have this experience a little bit in beer, but we have a Scottish ale that I think is the best Scottish ale I've ever tasted. And it's a, it is a Scottish ale, but you really can't enter it into a Scottish ale category because it's a little bit different. Yeah. A judge would not recognize it necessarily as a Scottish ale. And it would probably take off points because it wasn't in the palate that they thought it should. Yeah. Yeah. So we would have to enter our Scottish ale into a, like a miscellaneous category. Right. And then you're like, that doesn't do me any good. Yeah. And then I don't want to do it. So do you have that problem because of the emergence of American dries or is that the issue? It's getting better. I'd say it was more of an issue, say, three years ago. I I would say that, unfortunately, you've got an inversion. So there are very few gin distillers that bother with the U.S. tastings competitions yeah. Yeah. because they know that there's going to be judges more than likely at the gin table who are not trained on the categories. Yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, that's why I love being a judge for uh, American Distilling Institute as a, as a gin judge, because I know when I get my flights of gin, the um, person who runs that competition is also one of the, the world-renowned most experts on gin, and he's phenomenal. He runs several competitions, including the World Gin Awards. But when I get yeah. my flight of gin at my table, and of course, everything is just a number. I, don't, I never see a bottle. Yeah. I know if I'm supposed to be looking at different base distillates or different categories, it's outlined what I've got in front of me in terms of making sure that this is the contemporary flight. This is the uh, old Tom flight. This is the London drive flight. And then it's all by ABV too. So you don't burn your palate. Right. But of course, then we do get the navies and then you're, and that's fine for me, but other people at the table are, takes them a little bit. And how did you get certified for that? There's no certification available. It comes down to your uh, reputation in the gin community Um, and whether or not you've been recognized as building a palette for. Yeah. Winning every year can't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I think this is where it's also a little bit hard to navigate sometimes because yes, Lee is our master distiller, but uh, there's no way he would put out a gin without my palette. Yeah. Um, he and I, like I said, we share palette. He calls out some things that I might, uh, not see, but I guess there's a term called like a super taster. Mm -hmm. I'm very blessed that that's the palette I, I have. I don't think I do, you know, and Mm -hmm. I, and I enjoy it, but I, I don't think I could make those distinctions. This has been another episode of Brands in Action. Many thanks to our guest, Melissa Katrinsic. Stay tuned for part two coming in two weeks. Today's show has been brought to you by Pony Source Brewing, who reminds you with our Lieutenant Governor's Fund for the Fabulous, don't be mean to people. Go to fundforthefabulous.love for more info. Pony Source Brewing, drink about it. If you're digging the show, please give us a review and a like. It really does make a difference. Production help by Tim Mislock and Nathan Nichols, editing by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell, and music by Medium Heat. All other help from your friendly neighborhood Baldwin and.